say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey listeners, if you love this Anthro Life and you want to support the show, Anchor.fm makes it super easy to do. They give you options to donate $1, $5, or $10 on a monthly basis. Whatever you choose to support us with, we're grateful to have you, and it's going to help us produce better and better content. And now, on to the show. Hey everybody, welcome to This Anthro Life. As always, this is Adam Gamwell. Today we've got a very special episode for you. Uh, this was recorded live at the Society for Applied Anthropology's annual meeting. We were at Santa Fe, New Mexico. Beautiful place, wonderful to visit. I got to hang out with the podcast team uh, that does the SFAA podcasts. And on top of that, my session was voted as uh, one of the ones that they wanted to record for the podcast. So this is kind of a fun meta episode i suppose where it's a team of podcasters recording a podcaster uh and then we're putting out a podcast from that uh, so anyway uh, i talk in this episode a lot about my research on a quinoa gastronomy project that i was working on last year in peru in 2016 uh, and so i'm not going to give too much of an introduction about it just want to let you know this is a very special episode brought to you in collaboration with our friends at the society for applied anthropology and as always we're brought to you with our other friends in mind the american anthropological association as well as sapiens uh, an awesome online journal that we want to tell you a little about uh, that's worth checking out. They've got a bunch of really cool writings that are also geared towards public audiences, kind of like TAL. Uh, and so, as always, we're happy to work with them. And the American Anthropological Association, of course, is always is a great and amazing institution to us and to anthropologists everywhere, giving people a hub uh, through which they can understand and dive into what anthropology is and see different career options and you know what you might want to do with yourself if you are an anthropologist or thinking about becoming one. Anyway, we're riding high, feeling good after, you know, we just, we announced last episode that we have over 10,000 subscribers. In that time, we've already gotten to 12,000, which has only been a two weeks. So incredibly, uh, the rocket is rising and we are very happy to be on it, going to space with you all. And uh, so we are incredibly honored and, and you know, humbled to, to work with everybody and just sort of share voices and, and uh, think together what it means to bring anthropological thinking and social science thinking and more holistic ways of, of talking about being in the world uh, to more ears, more voices, more eyes. Uh, and so we have a lot of stuff that's going to, you know, under development. You know, we'll talk more about in the, in the coming weeks and in years, really, we hope. 
As always, if you have any questions or ideas, feel free to shoot us a message. You know, we have our What's Your Story page on our website, as well as you can reach us at Twitter. Our, our at our symbol, our handle is This Anthro Life. Uh, as always, too, we do have a PayPal donation page. So if you love the podcast, please consider donating some money to us. You know, give us a dollar, five dollars, ten bucks, a thousand dollars, whatever works for you. Uh, we run the podcast out of our own pockets, and so we don't really like to ask for money. Uh, but you know, we we've when we look back at, we realize that we've reached twelve thousand subscribers so far on just paying for this out of our own pockets. You know, the expenses have been minimal so far, but we really want to expand now. We have ideas of. of doing more in terms of bringing you more content, doing some live streaming video stuff, uh, but we can't afford the equipment. So uh, if you want to help TAL expand and if you love it, just want to you know give us a high five, uh, please feel free to uh, you know drop us a couple bucks on the PayPal donation page. We will also be doing a Patreon account starting in the summer, and that's going to be sort of a monthly subscription service if you want. The podcast will always remain free. But if you want and you like the podcast and you can spare a couple of bucks a month, you know, you can that way you can donate five bucks a month or something on a recurring basis. You cancel any time, but we're going to open that up. We'll be very excited about that because this is just kind of a way of, of sort of getting patrons for the arts, as it were. And so we're hoping to bring that to you uh, in a couple months. But for now, you know, if you have any, if you have any extra couple bucks lying around and you're burning a hole in your pocket and you just want to help TAL get a get an extra coffee or we can save money towards our new equipment we want to get. Uh, we have a secure donation on the PayPal page, so please feel free. That's on our website. You can check it out on the link on the right side handbar. And so without further ado, that's a lot of announcements, I suppose. But anyway, thanks so much for, for being with us and hanging out and talking with us. And so uh, here we go. Let's check out. Uh, this is Culinary Catalysts and Scientific Shifts. It's Peruvian quinoa in the age of gastronomy and genetics. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, my name is Adam Gamwell, and I am, come from Brandeis University, uh, but I'm also originally from Texas. It's good to see some of my fellow Texans here as well. Um, and so I'm going to talk on culinary catalysts and scientific shifts. I'm excited about this because there's really great overlaps between our presentations that we can, we can think with together, I think. Um, and so we're looking at Peruvian quinoa, kind of in the age of genetics and gastronomy, and sort of looking at between these two dialectics. We're going to focus more on gastronomy. I realized as I put this together that the genetics would be its own other chapter. And so the impetus behind doing this is that I am writing my dissertation right now. And so rather than doing a straight conference paper, I wrote an entire chapter. And I don't think you want me to read 30 pages to you right now, but maybe later. So I'll give you a little context of kind of the bigger field work that I've been doing and, and let you know uh, what this is about. So as Emily said when we started, I also do this Anthropological Life or this Anthro Life podcast. And so the idea with this is I'm going to try to give a sort of open format presentation. And so we'll use the slides as our guides. And uh, I have some notes here. But for the most part, it's going to be kind of open and conversational. And as I've been to different presentations, I've altered what I'm going to say today. So this is kind of fun. So it's been, been in the making as we, as we go. So one of the main questions I've been working on when I did my field work in Lima and Puno, Peru, between March 2015 and August 2016, is this, this top question of how do actors negotiate these tensions between commercialization and conservation of agricultural goods, why and when would you choose to sell crops? And otherwise, why would you choose to conserve them? And for what? For what ends? You know, whether it would be food security, or it would be uh, autoconsumer if you want to eat it in your own community for your, your family, or if you want to have notions of heritage, etc. So I've taken what I call a kind of applied and design approach to this research. And what that is is that you know I work on both documenting processes that are happening in southern Peru as well as facilitate programs themselves. And so. I was lucky enough to get embedded with an NGO called Biodiversity International, which is listed there, that was contracted by the Peruvian Ministry of the Environment to run a incentive-based conservation program in terms of giving mechanisms to, in essence, pay farmers to grow agrobiodiverse 
varieties of quinoa that otherwise don't have market values. And so with that, then I also did other, I was sort of found my way working with other groups, including agricultural scientists that are working on gastronomy and agrobiodiversity projects, which is what we're going to talk about today, as well as entrepreneurs that were interested in opening new quinoa milk markets. And it's kind of an alternative to almond milk or oat milk or different kinds of milk. It's really quite tasty. Um, as well as using heirloom quinoa. And so all of these projects are centered around using agrobiodiverse kinds of quinoa. And what that means simply is quinoa that right now doesn't have market value. And so when you and I go to the store and we want to buy quinoa, does everybody eat quinoa here, by the way? Right on. So if you eat quinoa, we eat, there's about 15 genetic accessions that you can buy in the stores today in the United States. There's over 3,000 documented in Peru. So theoretically, that leaves 2,985 potentially under threat. And so the question is, what do we do with those other 2,985? You know, they're valuable too, and why have they been around? Let's work with those. So this is kind of the framework that I've been working in. So I, I do what Tim Ingold calls observant participation rather than just participant observation in that I will actively work with communities and help facilitate programs to understand how they run in the, in the first place. Okay, so just to kind of run through what we're going to look at today. We're going to theorize this, this notion of cultural brokers. This is kind of helping me understand what agricultural scientists themselves are doing in Peru. And we'll kind of contextualize quinoa's origins and some of the present challenges we're seeing that they are trying to solve for. Um, and then why gastronomy is their sort of fulcrum or their mechanism to, to sort of alter some changes. Um, and we'll talk about my two main interlocutors, uh, Alipio Kanyawa and Chef Maginya, their agro-gastro project, some of the new dishes, and then how they're trying to link this to traditional agriculture itself. Uh, so these are some of the themes that I'm thinking with with this, with this paper as well as in, in the dissertation as a whole. Some of these are kind of indigeneity, techno-science, uh, gastronomy. And so again, I'm interested in questions of science and how do things like genetics and, in this case, gastronomy to affect why and how people do agriculture. And if they are in conversation, if they're in conflict, could they be in collaboration, et cetera. Different actors feel differently about these things, and so we'll talk about two of them today. So for me, this question of cultural brokers helps me understand what certain actors who move between spaces much more easily than other people might be doing. So in this case, I'm kind of defining cultural brokers as people that can work between various boundaries, including things like indigenous and ethnic, local or global, elite or commoner, gastronomy, traditional food cultures, agrobiodiversity, or market standardization. So these kinds of dialectics they can move between. Now, one of the key pieces of this is that brokers have this kind of social capital that other people may not. And what they're doing is they're using this social capital to move between these different spaces to influence the outcomes of, of these kinds of dialectics. And so I'm looking at issues of translation, how they may translate genetic or scientific knowledge to indigenous TEK or traditional uh, ecological knowledge or vice versa. Questions of resource transfer in terms of our seed sharing happening, what are people doing with the foods, as well as notions of visibility shifting. What kinds of things do people want to be seen or have seen in terms of indigeneity or uh, genes themselves or uh, really any other kinds of, of, you know, clothing issues, textiles, dances, what kind of things do people want to have visible? So for example, one of the, one of the interlocutors, again, Dr. Kenner I'm working with, he to me encapsulates this idea of the cultural broker. In this case, he is an Aymara indigenous farmer, but he works and owns, he has his own farmland south of Puno, where I work. He also works and lives in the city, he has a home there, so he has a, he's both a middle class family livelihood as well as a, we call rural indigenous livelihood, he does both. He is an international he's an internationally recognized agronomist that works with the FAO and UNESCO. Uh, and he is known as a cultural expert on both Aymara traditions as well as speaks Aymara and, and also scientific expertise. And he's one of the main interlocutors and workers that's been doing scientific research on quinoa since the 1960s. And so this is sort of when I, I jumped in my research is that I was really interested in how do 
How is science affected, in this case, Western science, affected how we produce food, right? In this case, Peru, this story began in the 1960s. I don't have time to talk about that today, but it'll be in the disc at some point, I hope, maybe a book. And so what they're trying to do, what Dr. Kanawa is trying to do in this case, trying to do good by indigenous standards in this case. He's trying to make market accessibility available to those that want it in ways that are good for them. He's trying to promote agrobiodiversity. And also at the same time, he's moving between all of these worlds pretty seamlessly in a way that other farmers can't. In the cases that people that are in sometimes lower socioeconomic classes or higher may not wish to move between them. So one of these questions is, as he is sort of a unique individual that seeks to move between these. So one of my questions with this is then just what happens when we make these kinds of works, cultural brokerage, the focus of our inquiry, right? What do we see? So we'll begin with the beginning of quinoa, if we may. So Aymara legend has it that around the Altiplano in Puno, so I worked in southern Peru where you can see the arrows pointing. So around 5,000 years ago, there was a major drought across the land and it killed nearly everybody. People that passed by, needed food, they slowly ran out, had no water to water their crops, couldn't drink it themselves. People slowly starved to death. But there was a strange sequence of events in terms that people watched alpacas and llamas eating food. And they said, well, what are these guys eating there? They're doing okay. And they saw later came to be known as quinoa and his cousin Kenua. So only people that ate quinoa or Kenua were able to survive this drought. So in turn, the Amara named this plant Hirua or Hirua, which in Spanish means levanta moribundos, or in English translates to that which raises the dying, which is a pretty sweet name. You know? And so this is the kind of Amara legendary beginning of why we see quinoa mattering so much in terms of as a cultural staple, as an ecological staple as a form of being. So this is where we began, right? Today, we jump to 2017, and there's three kind of main present problems that, that Elipio or Dr. Kanawa has identified. One is that communities around Puno, which is the center of domestication of origin of quinoa itself, suffer from the highest rates of chronic malnutrition, including mostly anemia. And he says, that's unacceptable. If we have where quinoa came from, if we are from, if we are from quinoa, how is it that we have this highest rates of malnutrition? Second is that we're seeing traditional agricultural practices themselves are being abandoned in mass, right? And this is what you're talking about as well, Lauren. And this is a huge challenge, right? And this can be because of out-migration, the social pressures to say that farming isn't cool or it's not worth doing. Um, that's better to go work in the mines or that it's more stable. It's more urban to go work in a city. And so what we're having with that is this uh, correlated loss of traditional knowledge as well. Third piece that he sees is that there is market demand for any kind of crop in general does tend to lead towards standardization. Now, this is an issue for an agricultural scientist because one of the main things they work on is agrobiodiversity itself. And so when, what happens with that is when you lose and have a loss of agrobiodiversity, in this case, it equals a diminished capacity to deal with increasingly erratic climates. Now, Puno itself is, sits at 12,000 feet, so it's really quite high. And the entire region around there also goes higher than that. And so there's very few foods that even can survive at this altitude. And quinoa and canua, its cousins are some of the few ones that they can, alpacas and llamas. Uh, that are edible. And so and tarwi and other sort of Andean legumes and grains can also survive there. But what's interesting, you know, even when in the United States, if we have debates about is climate change even happening, which is a strange thing to even have that as a debate, right? When you go to Puno, farmers have been literally moving their farms up the mountains for 30 years to escape pests that are coming up the mountains with them. And so it's never, it was never even a question in the first place. You know, so we're talking, we're talking 40 years of change here. So you know, when, when, I see, when I see debates here in the U.S., it's always very difficult for me to say, well, actually, we have clear examples across the world, but we have to look outside our own borders, don't we? So with these three problems, one of the responses to this is this is what uh, Dr. Kanawa and his friend Jose Maguina are working towards. 
And so it's on the top right side, or, le or my left, you're right. There's Dr. Kanawa. He's an agronomist holding his quinoa. He always, he always has this twinkle in his eye, and when he talks about quinoa, he calls it bisnovias, which means my girlfriend's. Uh, and so whenever we visit his house, he's like, oh, come see my novias. His wife doesn't like that very much, but you know, who can say? Uh, and Chef Maginia works below, in the picture below, is also uh, his interlocutor and his, his collaborator in this gastronomy project. And so these two are trying to do a number of things that I um, would like to think through and with y'all with the Q&A as well. And so their mission in the simplest sense is, right, they're trying to fight agrobiodiversity loss. They're trying to keep those other 2,985 accessions of quinoa that grow in around the area alive and well. But they're trying to do it in a sort of roundabout and perhaps counterintuitive way, using quinoa-inspired gastronomy to change the narrative and change the ideas around what kind of quinoa people should be eating, and if they should be eating quinoa at all. So their methods are this sort of gastronomic reinvention of traditional quinoa dishes pointed towards foreign tourists, though, trying to get outsiders to want to eat these other kinds of dishes. And again, we can question and think about this. Their desired result would be that new demand for quinoa, or agrobiodiverse quinoa in this case, would incentivize farmers to continue to grow this kind of quinoa, all sorts of quinoas, right? Not just the ones that already have market value. And they can leverage that and leverage the social capital of quinoa now, because it is this world, now becoming a world staple very rapidly, to flip side curb malnutrition in Puno by incentivizing farmers to say, hey, this is actually really good food. Look, everybody else is eating it too. It's good for you. So we'll look at why that changed in the first place. And so, Ranjo to Sumaginia and Kenya, they both joke that they're promoting local agriculture through la conquista del estomago de la turista, where they're trying to you know, promote the conquest of the tourist stomach, which is a nice idea, I think. So let's, we're gonna dive into their project and talk a little bit about what it is they're trying to do and how they're doing this. And uh, think again, as them as cultural brokers, what worlds are they moving between that other people may not be able to? And what are they trying to do with this, this sort of social capital? So one question I had for them is why, why Peruvian gastronomy? Why using gastronomy as your toolkit to do this? And so Peruvian gastronomy is, has anybody been to Peru or hung out in the gastronomy movement at all? Right on, so this is, I mean, so since 2007, Peru has really elevated its own food culture itself to the level of national heritage. They're trying to get UNESCO to make it an international uh, intangible heritage item also. That's a slippery road, but we'll see if it happens. And so, in the same time, they also founded EPEGA, which is the Peruvian Society for Gastronomy, which is, again, founded by celebrity chef Gaston Acurio, and he has a whole team of celebrity chefs. This is like the Anthony Bourdain of Peru, you know, and he has a ton of really awesome restaurants, too, around Lima. But, um, and the idea is they're sort of mixing together traditional dishes, building new ideas, fusing foods together, uh, in essence, one level rebranding, another side of it is reopening the conversation of what kinds of foods we can have and what kind of foods do we want in the 21st century. And how do we include indigenous dishes, indigenous recipes, ideas, food heritages themselves in the equation. And so we'll see these sort of celebrations and reinventions of different kinds of food in the food cultures, including things like kui or guinea pig. Anybody eaten kui before? One brave, two, very good. It's pretty strange, because they, they usually serve it just the guinea pig cut in half. It's not the most aesthetically pleasing, but... So, for example, one of the ways they're reinventing kui is they are putting it in ravioli, so that way you don't see the guinea pig meat. It's much more sanitized, right? You know, so the question is, is that good or bad? Who knows? Uh, we're seeing this ahi peppers as well, and these are the peppers that he has in, in his photo, as well as quinoa and tons of other dishes. But so Maginia and, and Kenyo and Kiawa see gastronomy as a way to change people's thinking about food because nationally, internationally, this is recognized as something that's really good. You know, obviously we need to question who has access to gastronomy because gastronomy has class connotations, right? 
it's, you know, most farmers are not saying, oh, I'm going to go have some, some gastronomy today. You know, I want to make sure I have my, you know, herb-infused quinoa pills. You know, you don't see it too often. But they're going to try. They're, 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 they're this, they, they see something here that they're working with. And so this is, for example, so I, I was able to link up with them in, in uh, April 2016 when they were beginning this project. And so the idea simply is that they are doing a traditional form of agriculture called chakru which is multi-variety planting, which is just a risk mitigation strategy where you put more than one kind of crop in a field, and then in case if one gets mildew or gets a gorgojo or an earthworm or gets sick, it'll die, the other five will survive. It's been used for thousands of years. The opposite of this, of course, is monocropping, right? And that's what we do in the United States. If you know potatoes or corn, we grow one kind at a time. One disease kills them all, right? This keeps you away from using pesticides. This keeps it away from, you know, organic is not even a question, really. That became a certification issue later, right? But by itself, this, these production practices don't even use, you know, these, these other kinds of things. Only when you get to become sort of intensified do you need pesticides, do you need to think about monoculture. So, for example, this is Kuchiwila quinoa. This is Aymara for pig's blood, as you can see from the dark red color. It's traditionally used for making a fermented beverage called chicha, which you can make from corn also. And so they intentionally chose seven varieties of quinoa to plant in, these, in, this, in their plot here. And the idea is each of these has a traditional use uh, and can be sort of extracted and thought with and used. And so one of the ideas is they will make chicha to serve at the hotel. So one of the things they're doing is that, so, so Chef Maginia here works at the Hotel Libertador, which you can sort of see here in this image behind us, which is the most expensive hotel in Puno. Again, so remember the issue of class matters here a lot in terms of what we're doing with gastronomy. And so this is one of the most exclusive hotels in Puno, $200 a night or more, which is incredibly expensive when soles are one-third at the U.S. dollars or three soles per dollar. So your average Puneño citizen cannot even go to this hotel. But the idea is that if we take certain people as tastemakers, in this case foreign tourists, can their desire, if there can, can we build market desire for, in this case, agrobiodiverse kinds of quinoa that currently don't have market value, can people developing taste for that then change other people's opinions locally? Is one of their questions, and sort of the fulcrum they're trying to figure out. If we make new dishes of quinoa using cuchivila, this is Poncho, which is another very uh, saponin and heavy, it's a very bitter quinoa, uh, but it can be used really well for soups, as a base of soups. Uh, if they can sort of take plates, adapt them a little bit for tourist palates, can demand to be shifted? Again, their question is, if market demand can be created for one kind of quinoa, why couldn't it be made for another? So what they're doing is they're sort of starting at the social capital ladder at the top of it, saying if they're using gastronomy as a national item, let's borrow those tools and then try to bring it back down again. So one of the pieces we see, this is, this is my Anthony Bourdain day. I got to hang out with Chef McGinney and he made me all the, all the, all the dishes he was doing. And it, was, it was very cool. Um, and so I made, I made a little goofy video. I won't play it today because it's embarrassing. But I was, I was eating the dishes and, you know, pretending to be Anthony Bourdain. It was very, it's very nice. Um, but so just in terms of presentation also matters too. Again, we're talking about gastronomy. These are issues of placement on plates, um, issues of aesthetics. I mean, he put baby arugula over ice to show me how to make the dish. And so to him, he's saying, this is very important to recognize that we're doing this sort of high concept, you know, hot couture or hot or like high, high cuisine food, you know. In the back, you can see pasankaya quinoa, which is the red quinoa, which you can buy in the United States. Now, that's, if you ever buy red quinoa, it's pasankaya. Uh, normally, if you make quinoa right, you might put it in water, you know, and just boil it. If you're feeling a little more adventurous, you can put it in mushroom broth or beef broth or chicken broth, which is pretty nice too. What Magini did with this is actually put it with grape juice extract, fundamentally changed the flavor of it to make it sweet. Which actually is really good, so by the way, grape juice extract. It's another way of just sort of shifting what he's thinking and playing with food, being, being much more playful with how he could do this. And these are some of the main dishes that he's produced. 
So I'll talk a little bit about each of these, and then we can, we can think through these. So he's, he's both working with quinoa, and in this case, baby alpaca, or alpaca. So alpaca meat is also traditionally consumed in the Andes. It's a nice lean protein. Uh, and so he's mixing together both, and so both alpaca and quinoa have been heavily stigmatized since the Spanish conquest in 500 years ago. And so what, what the difference is that like when we look at quinoa today, I mean, if, if most of you have eaten quinoa or heard of quinoa, right, there's the, there's the general story that farmers can't afford to eat it anymore, right? And that was true seven years ago. But what, the story, for some reason, stopped there in our narrative. And the price actually crashed two years ago. And so it was really expensive for a while, but now it is so low, farmers are trying to decide if it's even worth to plant it to try to sell at all. Which has, on one level, good for agrobiodiversity, another level, bad for people who want to access markets, right? So one of the questions is, can we do this as a way to sort of revitalize other forms of quinoa that are not already in the market? So what these two dishes are doing, though, and this is a, just a question of like, what does it mean to link high cuisine as well as to food? Is that so? This is a, a baby alpaca carpaccio on the bottom left side, and so this is essentially pounded alpaca meat with some pasancaya quinoa on the side and some dollop in the middle. Now, what's interesting about this dish, if you think about it, is that this is transformed in a way that in no way resembles food in the Highland Andes, right? If we're looking at traditional lamb stew, which you're going to have usually three starches. You'll have rice, noodles, and potatoes, plus lamb, maybe some onion, maybe a carrot. Then you have this. They look quite different, right? So part of the question is, farmers are not even going to recognize this. I mean, you can see it's food, but they won't recognize this as what this is supposed to be. And then when we talk about using tourists as tastemakers, when they think about tourists as tastemakers, the notion of carpaccio is, is an Italian form of cold cut. So they're actually infusing this notion of European cooking and how cooking could be done with Andean foods. And so if you want to get a little, you know, little technical, Claude Levi-Strauss talks about the raw and the cooked and different kinds of foods, right? And so the raw ingredients tend to be Andean, but the cooked portion, or the cultured portion, if you want to call that, tends to be European. Now I'm, here to, I'm not going to pick apart their model, but it's worth thinking about. What issues are they using and choosing to use when they talk about making something gastronomically, right? What pieces work? And so when you're talking about hot couture, or not hot couture, uh, hot cuisine in Highland foods, What's happening? So Maginia calls this kind of food Highland fusion. Right? There, there is a movement called Novo Andean food, which is what you see in the Peruvian gastronomy movement. So he's playing off of that, saying it's Highland fusion. We're using Andean Highland ingredients only. Nothing from the jungle, nothing from the coast. And so, again, if we can, they say, change the dialogue from making these, uh, you know, sort of creating demand for this kind of quinoa and these sort of dishes, can we switch the dialogue to getting other people in the Andes themselves to also revalue quinoa. Part of the question is, why has this shifted in the first place? Because, you know, again, from the outside, we don't see that the quinoa boom has really hidden the past 500 years of denigration of indigeneity, especially in food cultures, too. Quinoa was outlawed for 100 years or so, a couple hundred years. It continued to grow because it grows up in the really high highlands, and the Spaniards didn't want to go up into the, up into the mountains because it's really hard to get there, for one. And then those communities were much better at fighting. And so conveniently, also, they thought it was a weed. And so over time, they just kind of forgot that it was illegal, which is convenient. But a sort of a more insidious thing started happening where that people denigrated both those Indios, right, or the, the Highland Indians, they would call them, as being, you know, racially not as good as Spaniards or the mestizo class that was emerging. And they included all of their food culture with that, too. So quinoa was first illegalized or made illegal, and then after that, it was just seen as food for the birds. And I remember, I remember a woman I lived with, a friend of mine in Lima, she said, you know, when we were kids, you know, we had quinoa, but we fed it to the birds. You know, even Chef Maguigny said when he first, he's from Juarez, which is north of Lima in, in, in uh, Peru, when he first heard of quinoa, they brought it to Lima to give it to pigs. It was named for people, which is ironic, of course, because this is one of the most power-packed protein foods in the planet. Ironic. 
So one of the things that I'm looking at, these are the pieces that, that I can see the, the agronomist and the chef kind of brokering through. Right? They're taking issues of gastronomy in general, right? Notions of taste and flavor, adding grape juice extract, adding textures by adding nice the bumps of quinoa or the arugula with some green. Presentation, right? Notions of preparation, how you put them together. Table settings, you know, courses, how many do you eat, and temporalities. And these are now being fused or brokered with notions of agricultural science, notions of agrobiodiversity, sustainability for the future. Yield, how much can a crop give? Production methods, you know, notions of tradition, crop arrangement, notions like the, the chakru. Conservation itself, do we need to keep more or less kind of varieties on farm? What's our goal? Notions of crop and genetic improvement. Again, I don't have time to talk about that today, but in the future. And then they're linking these, again, with notions of social, sociality, identity, indigeneity. Things that are notions as stewards and conservationists. So one of the tricks is that while traditional agricultural methods have been abandoned in mass, they're trying to bring those back along with agrobiodiversity of quinoa because they argue that, A, agrobiodiversity is better for fighting climate change because, again, you have things like the chakru or an Inoka I'll talk about, which is a crop rotation system that will help us mitigate against erratic climates. But on top of that, what that changes the idea in their minds is to gloss indigenous farmers as forward thinking, not as relics of the past or even sort of present, not quite thinking about how to, how to live in the future, but as forward thinkers learning and recognizing this is how we survive the future. These methods have gotten us through 5,000 years. You know, and as climate change gets worse, these are the kinds of things that we're seeing help crops and people survive. And so again, they're trying to add things like this with social capital saying, being indigenous is okay. I mean, another, which again, sounds a little weird on the outset, but a number of the other NGOs I work with, their explicit purpose is to help indigenous self-esteem. And by doing water rituals, and by doing agricultural rituals, and getting together and saying, it's okay to do these. Again, another paper, another issue, but interesting stuff. How do we marry these with hopes and desires? What do communities themselves want, right? Um, and again, this notion of being forward-facing. So this is just a, a woman's cooperative that I also worked with that was doing some work, and they are known as conservationistas or conservationists. And this is their regular yield of many kinds of quinoa that they like to celebrate and use. So I want to ask the question is, how do we use gastronomy to leverage best practices on farm in this case, right? How do we then say, all right, well, if we have gastronomy, we have some nice dishes, that's good, but then how do we then leverage best practices with that? Part of it is that when you re-gloss indigeneity as a force of sustainability, and when you re-gloss it as innovation or innovators, it does change you know, some of the coin of thought on level is, is what they're going for. And so part of the idea with the gastronomy project and then working with different communities who they will source the quinoa from is to make us think in terms of, you know, if you, if you, if you I'm saying I do design anthropology, think in, in terms of like contemporary design too, right? Rebranding the indigenous in some level, right? Is this a good or bad thing? I can't say right now, but this is one of their issues. They're trying to figure out how do we then change agriculture to be part of this gastronomy game as well. And the argument, of course, is that gastronomy, and the reason that we even have agro-diverse quinoa is because it have co-evolved with these agricultural practices that they're trying to support. Here's some photos of, of other ones. This is known as a sukakoya, which is ditched agriculture. And the idea with this, they also made them, they're both aesthetic and functional, which is, which is pretty nice. These have been abandoned in mass too, but so Kenya was working hand in hand with communities to revitalize the uses of this. And what this essentially means is that as rain, because rain patterns across the Andes in the past 10 years have, there used to be blanket rain one time in the rainy season, now it's patchy at best. So they can't necessarily mitigate water. Ditched agriculture of sucucoyos used to do this anyway. The idea is they're built in these nice collection receptacles that, that water can fill in. Then when it gets too full and it rains so much, they just filter back out. They're simple ditches on one level, but this is a, an important piece of what they call Andean technology that we can leverage to use 
as part of the story. Another one, again, you can see a picture of a chakra that Kenya was pointing at, and he's pointing at Misa Misa quinoa, which is used in masses. It's a bicolor quinoa. It's very pretty. Uh, but so the question is putting these parts of agriculture back in the story of gastronomy also. Again, if you think of you know, gastronomy in sort of this, its high class notions, it also is tied to notions of we want you know, our farmers to be treated well. We want to know the products are happy. And like, you know, that's why you'll see, you see ancient harvest or even in coffee products too, right? There's smiling farmers on the backs of packages and, and happy llamas grazing across the fields and such, you know? And so that picture can obscure this stuff, but this is sort of, he's saying, this is the reality of what we can do. You want a smiling farmer, do this, because then we all have food, better. And then of course, then the hope with this, by switching these around is that can we then also increase consumption of quinoa back home? We think so, and that's, that's sort of the hope. And so again, we are, like the idea is they're, they're trying to also show these other tr tr traditional uses of quinoa in this case. This is pinta roja quinoa, which is traditionally used to make makeup. Put some, get some rosy on your cheeks if you wanted. Uh, but bringing these notions and ideas back, that foods are functional as well as orthomolecular. They also do things for the body, but also we can use them culturally, of course. And so reinvigorating these ideas with the food is their quest. Uh, I mean, this is very early in their project, so that's why I'm giving you just a bunch of early examples. They're trying to put these pieces together as we speak. Um, last I talked to Chef Maginia, he was 70% done with a recipe book that he is going to write that will have these traditional recipes reinfused and, and gastronomy is his idea. And then Dr. Kanawa is writing essays on traditional Indian agriculture to mix with them. Um, this will be published in Spanish originally or first, but then uh, they asked me to help them translate it to English. So that'll be part of our next project. And then I suggested to them that we also make it quadlingual and put it in Aymara and Quechua also so we can get back to the people as well. So I'm hoping that, I don't know when that will take place, but hoping to get there. This is not just the last example. This is not an Inoka. This is community health land. And so this is an interesting mix because this is a not is a non or a capitalist form of production. Right? This is community held land that rotations, that communities have, that together they all plant quinoa in one plot one year. And then next year they'll rotate it to be, or first is potatoes, then quinoa, and then legumes or barley and wheat. And then they let the land rest for seven years. So traditionally, it takes 10 years. It's, it's a very long cycle. But again, when you're not producing for market, it isn't that much of an issue. However, you, so communities do this, but they also themselves have individual plots of land they can grow whatever they want on. And so there is this double system of both potential capitalist expansion and non-capitalist expansion on these plots. This is one of the big things that Dr. Kanawa is trying to push, is that if we can get this sort of rotational practice back in use, about 50% of them have been abandoned since the 80s which is not a long time, if you think about it. And so he's hoping that we can sort of turn the clock back or forward once again, recognizing that this sort of practice can produce a lot of food for whoever, whether food security or sales if you want to, and do it in a, one of the most efficient ways possible that's also ecologically sound. Okay, so just final point. Chef McGinnia points out that every plate has a protagonist. And so my question to leave us with is that, in this case, is, is that protagonist quinoa? Is it the farmers? Is it traditional agriculture, is it science itself? Could be all these, I don't know. It's something we can think through. So questions I'm wrestling with now is that what does it mean to leverage high cuisine for conservation? Is that functional? Does it work? And then we're seeing these gastronomic elements mixing together, right, of taste, setting, and presentation. They're infused with agricultural science elements of this mixed cultivation, agrobiodiversity, and, and Anoka's rotational practices. And then a final question just to think with, might we ever go, you know, when you go to the store, you can get Guatemala AA coffee or Ethiopian Harar. Are you going to go to the store one day and say, oh, I'm going to get some pasancaya. Oh, then I need some poncho actually, of quinoa. Would we see that happen? Unknown. Anyway, 
we'll leave us with that, but thank you so much. And uh, we'll go from there. Hey, once again, this is Adam, the present Adam versus the past Adam you just heard. Wanted to say thanks again to the Society for Applied Anthropology, the podcast project. Thanks so much for recording this podcast session, as well as a host of other ones they have. So this is just one one session of many that they have. So you can check out on their webpage. We have the link below. Uh, they got a ton of great content and other speakers. Uh, so a special thanks to Lindsay Robertson for being the audio tech, putting the episode together, and John Sarmiento for setting up the, the podcast project and making sure that everybody gets recorded. This has been Adam Gamel for This Anthro Life. We'll check you next time. Ciao. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.